Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. Last year was certainly a busy one for movies, if not always for the right reasons. Just as the cinema started opening up again after two years battering by the pandemic, suddenly they found themselves at risk of having nothing to put in them with the actors' and writers' strikes in Hollywood. But before that, there were even bigger upheavals. The old order was changing as the usual fare found itself floundering. Let me make this easy for you. You will bring me what I need. Or everything you call life will end. For ten years, the studios had been happily churning out the same old stuff. Comic book blockbusters, familiar titles, often from TV, remade with modern stars, and endless franchises cashing in on nostalgia for previous hits. And then last year, many of them sprung a leak. You've taken your chances, made your mistakes, and now a final triumph. They started to be only sort of successful, and they'd cost so much to promote, let alone make, that they struggled to break even. In their places were, well, real movies. Barbie in the real world. That's impossible. If this got out, this could mean extremely weird things for our world. This would be catastrophic! We haven't played with Barbie since we were like five years old. Okay, you could argue that Barbie, sponsored as it was by a multi-billion dollar toy company, was more a giant example of product placement than a work of art. But it was also like nothing ever seen before, and Greta Gerwig's mashup of Toy Story, The Wizard of Oz and Second Wave Feminism was entirely its own thing. Are you going to heaven? No. you got to be a good person to go to heaven. So, we're the same. We can't go to heaven. Because you're not good. And I'm not a person. So that was one of the big takeaways of 2023. Movies that were original, that weren't based on a set of tired old Hollywood prescriptions. Now, original doesn't always mean brilliant, of course, but at least people seem to be writing new stories and also looking for new stories to turn into movies. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. This is good news for all those independent directors like Alexander Payne, Wes Anderson, Nicole Holofchainer and the Coen brothers who've been making those movies anyway for their small but enthusiastic audiences. Seeing the success last year of their former colleagues Greta Gerwig and Christopher Nolan must have raised hopes for a lasting interest in real movies. You're not here. We're not there. The car exploded. 
Come get the girls. I have to stay here with Woodrow. I'm not their chauffeur. I'm their grandfather. Where are you? Asteroid City, Farm Route 6, Mile 75. Well, this week, an assortment of interesting novelties, including a chat with Todd Haynes, the modern-day champion of classic Hollywood in films like Carol, Dark Waters and Far From Heaven. Later in the show, Dan Slevin talks to Todd about his latest, possibly most controversial film, May, December. When they sent me the script, I thought, here is a woman with a lot more to her than I remember from the tabloids. What would make a 36-year-old woman have an affair with the seventh grader? There's a traditional art film from Brazil, a tale of crime and poverty called Charcoal, And first, the sequel to a hugely successful Australian thriller, Force of Nature, The Dry 2. Alice? Alice? Hey, can you hear me? Are you okay? Daniel knows. Alice? Alice! Calling Force of Nature a sequel to the popular cop movie The Dry is perhaps pushing it a bit. Yes, it stars Eric Banner as federal detective Aaron Falk, but otherwise there's not much connection with the first film, which involved a man returning home many years later and solving two vaguely connected crimes. So you've heard some stories about me? I've heard some. You got a personal history with the girl who died in a river 20 years ago. Here's a connection between the two deaths. Well, this time Aaron is solving the mysterious disappearance of Alice, who works for a shady financier called Daniel Bailey. Alice had been part of a five-woman team-building exercise to survive in the bush for a weekend, but only four came out. Alice has been on her own for more than 30 hours. Why does she call you? A couple of feds out of their natural habitat. The other women include Jill, the boss's equally dodgy wife, two sisters, good girl Bree, ne'er-do-well Beth, and there's the meek and mild Lauren, who had issues with Alice before they even went into the bush. Daniel Bailey, you work with Alice? She's a very highly regarded member of our team. No mobile phones. You need a social media-free weekend, ladies. You'll survive. Now, if director Robert Connolly has a weakness, it's his fear of a simple, straightforward narrative. So Aaron's investigation is constantly interrupted by not one but two flashback sequences. What happened with the five women and a totally unrelated trip in the bush by a young Aaron and his mum and dad several years before. Your mind starts to play tricks on you out there. Like you're being watched. Was Alice up to something? I think people make their own choices. Although we're not always clear of the consequences, are we, Alice? Still, like the dry, force of nature is that rare thing, a big hit on both sides of the Tasman. It pops along at a commendable pace, glossing over a few holes in the plot, and Eric Banner, as always, is a likeable presence. None of you have been honest with me about what happened out there. Why are you really here? New Zealand producers don't have a crack at a few more film thrillers like this. They're clearly popular, judging by the success of TV series like The Brokenwood Mysteries and After the Party. Perhaps we can give the cinema of unease a rest for a bit and turn to simple affair. After all, who doesn't want to know who done it? Nature holds us all to account.
The apparent weakness of many world cinema art films, their minuscule budgets and the fact that they are in Oscar parlance, not in the English language, can also be a strength. They're already intriguing and unusual with new faces and exotic locations, not to mention unpredictable stories. Charcoal is set in Portuguese-speaking Brazil, a dirt-poor village in a struggling family dependent on a charcoal oven. But it also involves a far wealthier character from Spanish-speaking Argentina, a crime boss whose troubles are rather more immediate. In short, he needs to disappear fast. We open on Irene, played by a Brazilian actress called, surprisingly, Maeve Jenkins. Maybe her ancestors came from Wales. Irene's sick of her life, constantly bickering with her hyperactive son, Jean, while waiting for her comatose elderly father to die. Her husband, the charcoal maker of the title, is worse than useless too. And then Irene gets a visitor. Grandpa's new nurse offers a practical solution. The patient is dying anyway. Why not replace him with a paying guest from Argentina called Miguel, an extremely well-paying guest? Irene is shocked for about 10 seconds and then she agrees to, shall we say, assist Grandpa on his way, after which she puts out the welcome mat for Miguel. Well, that's the setup, and unsurprisingly, things get complicated immediately. Miguel is used to living in cocaine fueled luxury. The two room shotgun shack he now finds himself in is a shock, though it has one undeniable thing in its favour he's not likely to be killed anytime soon. On the other hand, he's more likely to die of boredom since he's not allowed to leave the house in case he's spotted. And he's not happy to be sharing a room with a nine-year-old kid, though Jean's philosophic about his new sleeping arrangements. Did they tell you who I was, asks Miguel? They don't tell me much, shrugs the kid. What seemed an ideal situation, the family have never had so much money, soon proves to be anything but. Miguel is a terrible guest, always complaining. All that extra money is all very well, but how do you spend it without raising suspicion? And what happens when you get unexpected visitors? Something's got to give, and the way I'm describing it possibly makes charcoal sound more entertaining than I found it. The trailer certainly drives along nicely with some great incidental music, which sadly is nowhere to be found in the actual movie. Director Karolina Markovic is obviously determined to tell her story with no unnecessary filmic bells and whistles.
Charcoal is one of those films I wanted to like more than I did. Best thing in it is the kid who gives Charcoal a bit of refreshing attitude whenever he shows up. Mas é bom para a família de vocês. May December, directed by Todd Haynes, was inspired by a real-life scandal in the 90s where a sixth-grade teacher was jailed for having sex with a pupil. They subsequently went on to get married and have a family. Julianne Moore plays a similar teacher, Gracie. Natalie Portman, who brought Sammy Birch's script to Todd Haynes, plays Elizabeth, an actress planning to play her in a film. And Joe, Gracie's new husband, is played by newcomer Charles Melton. Well, Dan Slevin asked Todd Haynes how far along the script for May-December was when he got involved. I mean, nothing was really locked down except that we had a, a draft of the script, and it was an incredible script. Um... And I had a lead actor uh, who brought me the script, who was obviously uh, going to play the actress in the film, uh, Elizabeth. But the script was something that kept evolving through the process of me getting involved in conversations that I had with Natalie about the script um, and with Sammy, which were an incredible part of the initial process of uh, of sort of taking her instincts and I think I think leaning into them even a little more boldly in that the films uh, basically the film's indeterminacy the, the the fact that you couldn't completely um, find resolution that was comforting at the end of the film. These were things that we felt could be even strengthened in in drafts that came out of our conversations. The fact that the film was set in in uh, Camden, Maine, very very different location than where we ended up shooting the film. We didn't really know when we would make it. I just knew I wanted to, and that I was interested in working with with Natalie in it. And it was very fast to make the decision that Julianne Moore, um, or or at least offer Julianne Moore the a read of the script to see what her temperature was like on playing Gracie. Once she read it and said she was really interested if I was directing it, I told, I asked Natalie what she thought of Julianne and she went through the roof. So (laughs) she was so thrilled. So, um, you know, uh, uh, every aspect of the film, I think became um, specific to it as a film. Once we all joined in, and once I brought my creative team on and, and all the specifics of what it looked like and how it would be shot and what the music would be like and all of those things that I think are, are hard to imagine uh, watching the film without uh, were obviously things that we all brought to the process. How, how do you choose your roles? Hmm. I want to find a character that's difficult to understand. Why are they like this? Were they born or were they made? I thought you were taller. You look, you look taller on television, but we're basically the same size. You used the word indeterminacy earlier on, which I think is just a wonderful word to describe this film because it's a really hard film to put your finger on in terms of exactly um, how to feel about it, but even necessarily what's actually happening at 
at, 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 at some points in the film. And I've tried to explain this to, uh, to friends of mine who haven't seen it. Is it a film about a complicated relationship seen through the lens of an actor or is it about an actor's process as it's seen by what my actor friends call civilians you know that uh, it, it could be both at the same time or perhaps even neither in some ways what, what's your take on it i think what's so so impressive about the 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 script and its concepts and the way that it keeps um confirming even its own ambivalent aspects and letting you feel liberated as a viewer, initially as a reader, but then as a viewer, to, to be interrogating yourself as you watch it and to be shifting your allegiances and your trust in one character to the other, even against your own moral uh, kind of girdings, you know, like we obviously come with great suspicion around the character of Gracie, but it's only as Elizabeth becomes less and less reliable as a narrator in the storytelling that you find yourself inexplicably feeling uh, new compassion for, for Julianne's character. And then of course, both women in this sort of heated combat of powers ultimately yield space for us to start looking very closely at Joe and for his ability to start to take these very tiny steps toward his own um, recognition of his own self in, in, in the story. So I, uh, to me, I found like it's as much about the politics of storytelling, truth telling, who gets to tell the truth, who owns these stories, and at what service are they to the larger systems of power and morality and social norms that we all are confined by? You talked about um, a kind of neutrality or a shifting, shifting perspectives through the film. But there's one aspect of the filmmaking which sort of it, it feels like it's um, very consciously... Um, wanting to provoke an emo a particular kind of emotional response in the viewers and that's the choice of the music the score that you've um that you've got um Marcelo has taken with your encouragement i think uh, Michel Legrand's 1971 score to the go between and reorchestrated it uh but it has a very very unusual tone that sometimes that's often feels like it's in conflict with what we're seeing on the screen. It's, um, you know, you've got these very benign sort of domestic, polite situations, but the score is all foreboding and menace. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and I understand that you were, you, you were playing some of that score while you were shooting and that that was what encouraged you. Tell us a bit about that, how that informed the process. The... <laughs> It was this craziest, uh, craziest and most sort of uh, delicious discovery while I was putting together my image book for the movie and what I usually do in preparation for a film, all the visual references that 
that I I hope will inform the director of photography, but also the designer. And and in this in this project, because we had so little time, I just ended up sharing everything I was doing with everybody, so that we were all together in it, right? But around that time, I watched The Go-Between on, on Turner Classic Movies. It's a film that I had seen, I think, when I was when it came out, when I was a kid. But the film has basically fallen out of circulation in the United States. You can't get it on DVD in the United States. It's, it's not a film that, I, that is circulated. And so I watch it and I was just, it's a beautiful film. It's a fantastic Losey film. It's quite, it's a bit different from either The Servant or, or, or uh, Accident, but in tone. But that score is like no other Losey film. It's like no other Michelle Legrand score. It's not like the scores that we associate in traditional melodrama. It's not like Douglas Sirk. It's not like Fassbender. It's not like European art cinema. It's like nothing I've ever heard before. And it asserts itself with such a formidable um, presence at the very beginning. It literally slaps you across the face in the go-between. And that film, which is set, you know, in the turn of the century, bucolic English countryside, about a coming-of-age story of a kid, it is. it feels even less relevant to a prior crime that the story is emanating from, uh, but it forces you into this active state of literally questioning every frame, every inch of the screen. You're looking for clues that might fulfill what the music is telling you, where the music is telling you the film is headed. And I just thought that was exactly what we needed, was an active slap across the face to the viewer for this film that made it, put it in your hands to be thinking and questioning and kind of thrilled by not knowing where you, where you fall. Um, again, this is all, this was all like wishful, you, you take risks, you try this, you hope this will work. And in a schedule this this tight, we only shot it one way. We shot it the way you saw it, which is with these sustained shots and these mirror scenes when people direct address to the lens and all that. And I played the music throughout the course of the shoot to kind of put everybody in this sort of mindset. All we knew is that we were having the time of our lives while we were making it. <laughs> and if anything, that made me mistrust the outcome of the film even more because I'm like, this is, this is too much fun. I'm enjoying being with these people way too much. So the film is clearly going to suck. So good. What's your relationship like with your kids? How is that relevant? You're the actress playing my mother. Look me in the eye and tell me how selfish you are. You used the word morality earlier on. Do you, are actors amoral <laughs> in terms of how they go about their business? Um, that's a, that's a, that's a tricky question. Um, I sort of think all storytelling is amoral and I don't think the moral agenda that we try to attach now to, uh, positive representation of this kind of subject or that is serving the interests of great filmmaking. And, um, I don't know that that's ever been, uh, characteristic of the most interesting moments in film history and the most interesting work by certain directors. I think they want to push into places of discomfort and where 
where you have to ask hard questions and feel conflicted emotions about the things that you're seeing and watch human beings struggle maybe against their own self-interest in self-destructive ways or in destructive ways that beg a lot of questions about how hard it, you know, that raise questions about the fact that it's really hard to be alive in the world and to figure out the best way to solve your, your problems in, in your life. So, but on a very specific answer to your question, your interesting question, I haven't worked with actors that display anything close to the, <laughs> to the, uh, you know, recklessness, let's say, of of Elizabeth uh, and that character. Um, but I found the whole premise of these two women at the core of the story being so self-interested and so willful and so able to pursue their own desires in their lives and having men yield to those desires, right? I, I, you know, that's not typically the kind of female characters that I represent, that I'm, that I, that, that, that I've explored in my films of, in the past, but I found it to be really fascinating in this one. And I don't think it would work if you didn't have the sensitive portrayal of, of Joe as the real third act of this film. Thank you for doing this. Well, I want you to tell the story right, don't I? They're sweet, aren't they? We've been together for almost 24 years now. It's hard to trust that you're going to represent things as they were. What would make a 36-year-old woman have an affair with a 7th grader? Todd Haynes talking with Dan Slevin. May December opens around the country this week. And that pretty much brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.